Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from the KKXX Studios, Life Radio, Chico 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but I have been a photographer for over 30 years. And if a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you could say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as the program, What the Cross Means to Me, by Harvest House Publishers. Each week we read one of the essays and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. This week's essay is The Joy to Come by Becky Freeman, who's a best-selling author of many books for adults and kids. Among her titles are the four books in the Gabe and Critter series, The Worm Surprise, The Happy Hoppy Frog, The Colossal Catfish, and The Lovable Ladybug, and Peanut Butter Kisses and Mud Pie Hugs. Becky has been a featured guest on Family Today radio broadcast and Focus on the Family. She and her husband, Scott, live in Texas and are the parents of four children. And with that, let's start the essay, The Joy to Come, by Becky Freeman. When I think of the cross, I think of the hope-filled words about Jesus from the writer of Hebrews. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's Hebrews 12, 2, and 3. These verses remind me of a woman in labor who endures the agony of birth pangs, the water breaking, the blood flowing by... Focusing on the joy to come, the precious face of the soon-to-be-born baby. Christ endured the agony of the cross as he labored for the joy to come, the faces of his children newly born into the Father's arms. Suffering, wrote W. E. Vine, increases our capacity for joy. Isn't that profoundly true? Almost every deep joy is preceded by some sort of suffering and often a time of sheer, dogged endurance. When I wonder how my Savior endured the tauntings, the thorns, the torture of the cross, I remember that his spiritual eyes stayed glued on the joy to come, on faces newly born, free from sin, and made innocent by the water and blood that flowed from his side. And I am humbled with awe and gratitude to be one of the faces he died for. My joy to come held him fast the cross, when at any moment he could have torn himself away from the agonizing scene and flown to heaven's safety. When I grow world-weary, when moments come to me as they do to all of us, where my grief is so heavy that the very best I could do is simply endure the hours, I find comfort by turning my spiritual eyes to my beloved focal point, Jesus himself, the joy 
to Come. That ends the essay, The Joy to Come, by Becky Freeman, included in the book, What the Cross Means to Me. There is a poem preceding this essay by Augustus M. Toplady, which says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And there is an image, a cross image, accompanying this essay, which is titled, The Way. It's an image from the early days of my capturing the cross. Even though a pure silhouette, you can tell there is tall grass about two to three feet high around the base of the cross. There is a commercial airliner flying over and away from the upper right-hand quadrant of the silhouetted cross. You can see the airplane is flying away from the cross. As some of you who know this cross collection, the entire collection was shot on 35 millimeter film. In this case, I experimented with color infrared film. The effect is a surreal mix of green and yellow instead of the usual blue. A green sky does not sound like it would work, but it actually does for this image. The yellow sun comes up and across and spreads out from where the sun just set and zonally turns from yellow to a calming shade of green cross from the rest of the sky. It is a cool cross image. Why did I choose the name, the way, for this image? The first thing that pops into my head is that the original Christians, after the ascension of Jesus, referred to themselves as the way. It makes perfect sense as we Christians are to emulate Jesus, and the way is how Jesus referred to himself. Do you remember when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14.6 The early followers of Jesus were first called Christians at Antioch. And it means followers of Christ, followers of the Messiah, or followers of the anointed. But that is something that evolved over time. Throughout the earliest part of the early church, as we see in the book of Acts and in other historical documents, the followers of Jesus weren't called Christians at first. They were called followers of the way, or people of the way. They were not simply committed to a cultural practice, or ritual, or religious obligation, but they were reported to have lived in complete devotion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They lived differently because of their encounter with the Lord Jesus. They thought differently. They loved differently. They approached every aspect of their life differently. Here are some verses that talk about their name before the name change that happens by Acts 11.26. So in Acts 9.2 it says, And ask him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Acts 19.9 But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Acts 19.23 About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, <laughs> meaning the way caused a lot of disruption in the synagogues of the region. Acts 24.14 But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Acts 24.22 But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. So, let me transition from this knowledge of the early church to the real reason, which is really not that much different, but it is that I am a human soul traveling through this thing called life. I am on a journey, and I can choose what paths to go down, as there are many forks in the road every moment of every day. 
Now, yes, I chose to believe in the divinity of Jesus and how he accepted his destiny of being a sacrifice on the cross. And yes, I asked Jesus to come into my heart, and in that moment, I became born again. Does that mean I am a perfect divine being now? No, far from it. (laughs) Does it mean I've arrived? No. I'm still a sojourner, traveling through all the ups and downs of life. I am and will always be on the way, on the way from good to better, every day. One of my daily prayers asks God to be with me on the road to righteousness for his namesake. I would be disingenuous to say I'm a righteous human. I am by now a very seasoned sinner, but I am more righteous today at this date than the same date one year ago. And if I am on the way, what direction am I headed? The ultimate goal of all of us believers is to be in the presence of God in heaven for eternity. In this image called the way, there is a plane flying away from the cross. So my artistic interpretation of this is that because of the sacrifice made on the cross, when we pass on, we have a special first-class flight over the chasm between the majority of mankind living in a fallen state to the glorious presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ, forever. This image is one that inspired me to consider making prayer cards and memorial products for the funeral home industry. That said, today's devotion is in regards to Becky's essay, Looking Forward to the Joy to Come. She she discloses in her initial reaction and thoughts to the question, what does the cross mean to you, was that she recalled a special scripture found in Hebrews in chapter 12, verse verses 2 to 3. And Becky's perspective reminds me of a poem by Beth Moore, simply titled, Jesus. He is Jesus, the one and only, transcendent over all else. To know him is to love him. To love him is to long for him. To long for him is to finally reach soul hands into the one true thing we never get enough of, Jesus. Take all you want, take all you need, till soul is fed and spirit freed. Till dust is till dust is suspended face to face, you see Jesus Christ. He is all you need. Becky's perspective reminds me of a poem by Beth Moore, simply titled, Jesus. He is Jesus, the one and only, transcendent over all else. To know him is to love him. To love him is to long for him. To long for him is to finally reach soul hands into the one true thing we never get enough of. Jesus, take all you want, take all you need. Till soul is fed and spirit freed, till dust to dust his face you see. Jesus Christ, he's all you need. Beth once wrote that Jesus is my delight. She said, he is my safety. Loving him with absolute abandon is no doubt in my own best interest. As one who has been delivered from a life of defeat and hidden self-destruction, my deepest desire for every man, woman, youth, and child is to find that love. Amen. Me too. And I do like the analogy that Becky begins her essay with. She likens the pain and suffering of childbirth to the joy of seeing your baby after the pain of delivery has been filed away in a faraway mental cabinet. And Becky is not just talking about the delivery, as there's an awful lot of pregnant moms. There's a lot of things that pregnant moms have to endure leading up to the delivery, especially in that last trimester. There are hormone changes, hot flashes, sore feet, backaches, changes in taste, heartburn, and even subjected to bouts of the baby kicking from within. The contractions are just the signal that she's about to enter a more intense phase. Like the appearance of a water cyclone when the water draws down to a certain level, the water spout is more defined as the volume gets down to a certain point, and 
the sound of the water gets more pronounced as the water gets closer to the gra- to the drain. Well, the analogy Becky raised was in regards to Jesus and what he went through on the cross for us. And as it says in Hebrews 12, it was physical pain, spiritual anguish, the deep sense of abandonment from his heavenly father, all of which he endured with his eyes on the joy to come. Mother Teresa of Calcutta built her ministry around a two-word sentence that Jesus said on the cross when he said, I thirst. And on a side note, there are two two-word sentences about Jesus in the Bible. I thirst and Jesus wept. To me, I feel Jesus cries when, he, when people die in their sins and he thirsts, he longs to bring salvation to as many as possible before they do die in their sins, to as many that will accept him. And Jesus looks forward to knowing these lives will be full of joy as they travel down the road that would be the rest of their life. And as I expanded on Becky's analogy of pregnancy, I can expand on my analogy about Jesus. You see, the cross was a a culmination. As we learned in several of my recent programs, the transition zone just before the crucifixion was the beatings, shame, and literal torture he endured during his trial and the through to the lead up to Calvary. To take this perspective on a deeper level, allow me to quote Isaiah 52:14, which says, just as there were many who were appalled looking at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond any human likeness. In another translation, it says, he no longer looked like a human man. It means you would not just not be able to recognize him as being Jesus Christ, but you would not recognize him as ever being human. Let that sink in a bit. Jesus was tortured and beaten beyond recognition. And yet before that, there was another transition zone of anguish and that Jesus suffered through the intense prayer session in the Garden of Gethsemane. As you recall, his spiritual distress was coupled with the anguish of, of the physical part of his body to the, to the point of sweating blood. This prayer session was the last escape hatch for Jesus to avoid torture in the cross. I mean, yes, could Jesus have called angels later, any time during the trial or the crucifixion, to be freed from his destiny? Yes, but I believe it was during the intense time of Gethsemane and the prayer session that he prayed through, that was when he chose to trade his body, soul, and spirit for the joy of providing salvation for mankind. And yet there was even another broader transition period between his life as a carpenter and being arrested by the Sanhedrin. And that is the three years of ministry that led him to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible says that Jesus, fully divine and fully human, suffered hunger, cold, overheating, sore feet, sore back, sore hands, grief, joy, an occasional uh, bruised thumb with with the hammer, <laughs> um, righteous anger, and many more uh, human emotions and human uh, spectrum of pain. The Bible says that during his ministry, religious leaders often tested, taunted, and even a few times tried to stone Jesus. The point is, Jesus suffered quite a lot leading up to the cross. We know from Scripture, as Becky shared, Jesus willingly went through the pain and shame, looking forward to the joy of all the souls that would be saved by his blood. Becky brought up a quote from W.E. Vine, which goes, Suffering increases our capacity for joy. Lots of analogies come to mind. One is in regard to the time, sweat, and pain of the typical Olympic athlete, what they go through just to qualify to be able to compete in their specific Olympic sport. Years and years of many hours 
almost every single day of practice and practice and practice, sometimes painful practice. Some must follow strict diets, precluding them from the joys that many of us take for granted. Things like ice cream and pizza are refused for years. Point is, these athletes chose or choose to suffer now in the hope of the joy they will realize when they obtain their dream of an Olympic medal. And many parents go through financial suffering or the discipline of tight budgets to pay for a good education for their children. Education for private elementary school or, of course, for the cost of a university degree. They sacrifice having a newer car or vacations or even taking the spouse out for a fancy dinner date once in a while. They'll forego that to cover the cost of a kid's education. There are many parents that you know and I know that make major sacrifices in the hope and the joy of seeing that child graduate with a degree. Another is the, and, and a good example is my brother. He wanted to retire recently when his son received his bachelor's degree in biochemical engineering. And my brother's a meat manager, meaning he is on his feet for eight hours a day and has been for over 30 years. He is at the point where his lower legs and, and his feet give them a lot of pain. And you can see the veins that stick out. I forgot the name of this condition, but you see lots of veins in his lower feet from his, his vocation, standing up all day. Now, my nephew is now going on for his master's. So guess what? My brother won't be retiring for at least another two years, but my nephew's ultimate dream is to get his doctorate. So my brother won't be retiring for at least another four years. Is he adverse to this or or bitter? No, on the contrary, he is more than happy to go through the daily pains of four more years on his feet all day to help his son realize the dream of a doctorate. Another would be the pain and suffering that an adolescent or teenager willingly chooses to endure, meaning they agreed to have metal fixtures installed in their mouth, most often for many years, just for the hope of joy that comes when they remove the braces and reveal a beautiful smile. In a general sense, this is the premise of what King Solomon was trying to teach us back in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, that there's a purpose, there's a time for every purpose, a time to be born, a time to die, time to plant and a time to uproot, time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. And it goes on. But what is the theme that is too obvious to miss? One might say opposites. Others might say duality. Others might see it as polarities. In its simplest form, life is full of good and bad, or polar opposites. may not be good or bad, but just opposites. So some, we do not have a choice, like Job did not have a choice, right? And others do have a choice. For example, choosing to eat a second plate at a holiday event. The latter not being a big deal unless you've had an overeating problem for a while. And so, each event provides an opportunity to suffer through only one plate or choose to enjoy the unhealthy second plate. But if over time an overeater suffers through eating only one plate a night for, say, a year, they can enjoy a smaller waistline and a more lean physique and a happier disposition about themselves. I know that's very simplistic, but let's take it down to a little deeper level. In one of my previous episodes, 15, Infinity at, the, Infinity at its Best, we discussed how everything we see, perceive, or understand about our reality in this universe is built on waves. And what is a wave? Another duality. Yes, just like light is not, not just a particle and a frequency, is also a noun and a verb. And the latter being my question, what action is a wave making? Another applicable name of a wave is a cycle. So picture the letter M 
or a sideways S, the wave travels up to one polarity and then down to another polarity and back up, back down, over and over and over and over again. This action of passing up to a positive polarity and down to the negative polarity is found at the subatomic level as well as the largest galaxies across the universe. Fractally, the point is that everything in our reality from the microscopic to the macroscopic is built on waves, or as I said, cycles. And everything is built on and or affected by cycles and the duality of polarity, the continual path of the wave between positive and negative. And thus, from our human perspective, we experience dark and light, tired and rested, cold and hot, hungry and full, happy and sad, hard and soft, like ice or fluids. These are polarities of the moment, but some are tied to daily cycles and others are tied to annual cycles. A year is defined as the annual trip of our planet around the sun, and this annual trip around the sun allows for, in most regions, four distinct seasons. Since these cycles affect everything on Earth, then it means that it not only applies and affects the physical aspects of who we are, but most importantly, the spiritual aspects of who we are, who we really are. When mankind lived in mostly agrarian society, we had to prep the land and plan and plant in spring, nurture and work hard through the summer to maintain it, harvest and harvest it, and then save it, like by canning or other methods, to save the food and sustain the family during the frigid famine of winter. My point is, we can't experience the joy of spring without making it through the sacrifices of winter. We have to make personal choices during those cycles of our lives, during the cycles of our environment. Lots of variables here, but if you live near the equator and a hurricane takes out your crops, you will find you and your neighbors without food for another year. You could do everything right and still find yourself in a destitute situation. But as we learn from Job, the proper choice is to love and praise God during and through any situation. Think about if everything was good all the time, why would we ever really need to trust God for anything? The Bible in the New Testament calls us to take up our cross and die to ourselves daily. It does not say you can put the cross on the shelf during hard times and stressful situations. It is a hard commitment to make, but one that has to be renewed every day. Yes, carrying the cross that the unique you will carry will require various levels and types of suffering. Some just make sense. And like in the tradition of Lent, if you refrain, you well, you are to refrain during those 40 days from the things that you have that have been getting between you and your relationship with Jesus and to achieving your destiny in God. Now, if you struggle with, say, gambling, it stands to reason that it makes you feel good to gamble. It does something in the part of your brain that makes you feel really good. Some scientists call this a disease, a mental condition, but other, but you know, it, 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 no matter, it, if you if your cross is to refrain from gambling today, then sure, it might be more painful than the Olympic hopeful passing up ice cream for you to pass on gambling for the day. For the gambler in the grips of that addiction, it may really hurt to actively and directly say no to the Adamic nature and to get through the day without visiting the casino or online gaming. But the joy of doing so makes you a better human and a better Christian. Okay, this may not be the best analogy, but there are many things that are big addictions to some that might seem like a small issue for others. Someone might say it's not a big big deal to give into gossiping about others, talking down a certain individual. I've heard it said that it makes the gossiper feel really good, makes them feel great to elevate themselves by tearing down someone else. For that gossiper 
Christian, a portion of their cross is to purposefully and proactively prohibit themselves from an activity that naturally feels good in order to live in the light of joy of the Lord. We need to remember the lesson of the two thieves hanging next to the crucified Jesus. The bad thief mocked Jesus as if he did not need a Savior. Of course he did. And he isn't the only one who deserves death. Every one of us has sinned and thus deserves eternal separation from God. But in his mercy, God became man and began to set things right. We just have to follow in the footsteps of the good thief, acknowledge our sinfulness, and turn to Jesus. Sometimes we too, like the bad thief, we doubt and we wonder why doesn't God just remove the suffering in our, in our life? Asking to be taken down from the cross is not the answer. Jesus endured it. Saint P- uh, the good thief endured it. St. Peter upside down endured it. Many saints and missionaries endured it. So we too need to endure it, knowing what we really deserve and worse. Knowing if we persevere, we can place our hope in something greater than merely being freed from suffering. We can look forward to the joy of receiving the fullness of the kingdom of God in our hearts here on earth and being with God forever in heaven. This is the whole story of the human race and for those of us on the way, meaning the divine Jesus allowing himself to be crucified cursed and abandoned, yet knowing the covert agenda, the hidden plan from the fall of the Garden of Eden, was to take back the dominion of this earth. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came back to life with the keys to death, hell, and the grave. The power that allows us to be saved, to be born again. Today, you too can choose to share in the suffering with Christ, trusting in the blood of Jesus to overcome the outpouring of wrath for the sins we deserve, and to allow God's joy while we walk in the way, living out our days on earth, and also hope in the eternal afterlife with the Trinity. If you are a Christian, have you been living in this perspective? If not, I suggest you meditate on the paradigm of the cross. Why? Because it removes all possible fear, doubt, and insecurity. It allows you to choose God's will without overthinking it, knowing that the truth of the gospel is that the worst case result of any scenario is the best case outcome for us, God's children. Go and live in that perspective today. And if you have not accepted the incredible sacrifice Jesus made for you, then I suggest you contemplate what he did for you. Read the crucifixion accounts in the Bible and consider asking God to refine your soul and heal your heart. Ask Jesus to walk with you and fill you with his love and joy today. And with that, go in grace, and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program heard every week on KKXX Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed in this week's essay called The Way, along with my other versepirations, then check out Magic Cross on Instagram. And if you're church youth group or school would like to learn how to fundraise through the Magi Cross products, hear other Cross podcasts, or read further meditative musings on the Cross through my blog, then log on to magicross.com. That is M-A-J-I-C-R-O-S-S.com. <laughs>